following program is in English. Thank you. To life. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Tell me our intro music doesn't touch a chord, it certainly does with me each week. And what a week it's been in Australia, most of the country now in cholera COVID lockdown again, with Victoria and Tassie having a semi-normal life with just restrictions. In short, down under is a bulligan again. Anyway, I'm not going to uh, get started about our governments and cholera COVID. Better tonight's L'Chaim. First up, we have a Frankel with a Finkel. Murray's guest is Dr. Alan Finkel, who from 2016 to 2020 was Australia's chief scientist. Murray's following on from last week's very interesting COVID interview with Professor Sharon Lewin. Tonight, Dr. Alan Finkel provides our L'Chaim Nicks with some valuable insights into the complexities and necessities of COVID contact tracing during this current pandemic and into the future. You're listening to L'Chaim on 92.3 FM, 3 Triple Z, connecting our Jewish community. Stay with us. Dr. Ellen Finkel, AO, is a neuroscientist, engineer, entrepreneur and philanthropist. And together with his wife, Elizabeth, and others, co-founded the multi-award winning Cosmos magazine. He served as Australia's chief scientist from 2016 to 2020. In January this year, you were appointed a special advisor to the Australian Government on Low Emissions Technology. Alan, welcome to Lachai. Maury, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, We're 18 months into a global COVID-19 pandemic, and as a former chief scientist, how do you think science and the public's faith in science has fared over that time? Maury, I think the question has to be qualified as to in which country. So... If you ask me that question in respect of Australia, I think the voice of science, in particular the health sciences, but also some of the social sciences, has been listened to by governments at the state and the Commonwealth level, probably at a level that we haven't seen before, certainly not in my time in in any aspect of public policy. So as Chancellor of Monash University for eight years and then five years as Australia's chief scientist, Um, It was truly wonderful to see how the National Cabinet was formed and included on a regular basis the Commonwealth Chief Scientists and not just him, Brenda Murphy and now Paul Kelly representing their own role, but also as chair of the Committee of State Chief Scientists. So that collective information was brought to National Cabinet on a regular basis. And I can tell you from having been there, not often, but occasionally, the voice of the economics experts, in particular the Secretary of Treasury, was also brought to National Cabinet on a regular basis. So we've seen advice being taken on board at a level that we probably haven't seen before. That's that's very positive. The task of communicating the science of the virus to the community has largely been the government's responsibility. And in a way, you've answered that. But uh, how do you rate its performance, especially the public health messaging around vaccination, which seems a bit more problematic? (laughs) Look, overall, I I rate the 
communication from state, territory and the Commonwealth government is pretty good. You know, compare it to the flip-flopping communication we had all of last year in America and what you see in Brazil and other countries occasionally in Europe. I don't want to pick on any individual country, but there's been a lot of flip-flopping. Now, people latch on to any inconsistency, any inconsistency or change of direction and say, oh, my gosh, look at the government. They don't know what they're doing. But it's not true. Um, we're working in an evolving milieu, and the government can only work with the best information that is available to it at the time. And so just think about mask wearing. We didn't start off with a message from government to wear masks all the time because it took a few months before the experts, by literally doing experiments, concluded that the major mode of transmission was aerosols rather than contact with surfaces. Yes, we do have to clean our hands, but it's not nearly as definitive as what was thought at the beginning because every virus is different. So things evolve, governments have to do things differently. But the reasons why Australia has fared so well is because government has communicated what it sees as the issues and the expectations in a reasonably consistent fashion. And people have taken on board their responsibility. So we've actually had a social compact between government and the population in a way that is a little bit rare. It fragments. It's not perfect. Think about National Cabinet. National Cabinet, we've seen Federation working since National Cabinet was formed in the beginning of last year. It's an unusual entity. We haven't had that in Australia before, where the Premier's and the Prime Minister come together during the heat of the crisis every week, otherwise every second week or every month, to deal with this challenging issue and try and come up with consensus positions. I don't know, Murray, you can put a number on it, somebody else can, but I think, let's say, the 90% level, they are deciding on consensus positions. At the 10% level, as is their right under the Constitution, Premiers are doing things differently. And the commentariat focuses on the 10% of difference rather than 90% of commonality. But in a political situation like that, 90% commonality is pretty, pretty good. It's remarkable. You <laughs> specifically in the context of vaccination, mm. that's turning out to be more difficult. The real problem with the vaccine is supply, not the issue that people are focused on. You hear a lot of criticism about distribution and should GPs be involved in pharmacies and the role yeah. of the states and the Commonwealth and who's not getting it right. Yeah. Well, all of those are manifestations of the fact that we don't have as much supply as we would like of the favoured vaccine. The government made a decision to get 53 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine because it was a proven technology and we knew we could build a homegrown manufacturing capability quite quickly and therefore have supply security and purchased, I think it was 10 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. But even from when they made the decision to purchase that last year, it was a long-term delivery schedule. The delivery schedule slipped because so many countries have more desperate need than we do and it would be morally remiss of the Australian government to demand to be advanced in the queue of international need over countries around us which are ravaged by the virus. And then what's happened is the AstraZeneca has fallen out of favour because of 
realities that have only become visible with time in terms of clots and, and other, well, mainly the clotting, the unusual clotting, and initially not knowing what age groups are affected. And because they didn't know, they made advice based on what had come from other countries overseas and what had been discovered here for, you know, under 40s, under 50s, now under 60s not to have the AstraZeneca. So people see that as withheld information. It's not. It's just the information unfolding as we learn more. But people have lost faith in the AstraZeneca vaccine for that reason. And so the government is ramping up its orders of Pfizer and Moderna, and they are going to be quite substantial from September. So my prediction is from September, when we've got substantial supplies of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, the delivery issues that everybody is focused on at the moment will become secondary. And hopefully things will go very smoothly from then till the end of the year. That's a very good answer. And uh, again, uh, very positive. As a result of Victoria's second COVID-19 wave, you were asked to chair a national review into contact tracing, which was uh, unanimously agreed to all the recommendations by the National Cabinet in mid-November last year. Just briefly, what, what was your general assessment back then? And are we in a better position now, almost eight months down the track, particularly in light of the current outbreak in Sydney? So our assessment of the expert panel that I chaired and the report was delivered to National Cabinet was that really across Australia, the contact tracing capability is quite high. There's no doubt that in the middle of last year, at the beginning of the lockdown and well into the lockdown in Victoria, uh, contact tracing wasn't up to scratch in Victoria. It was based on older manual paper-based systems. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the numbers got above a few dozen, um, it was just too hard to cope. And Victoria went into lockdown. The numbers were quite high. We had over 700 in one day at the peak. What we saw was probably the world's best executed lockdown. We actually got to zero as a result of that. But it was a a time where the government, and I was advising on this, the Victorian government was able to invest in improving their contact tracing. So the other states entered the pandemic better prepared. Victoria was behind, but they've improved dramatically. And there's no doubt that Australia across the board has between good and very good contact tracing systems. Contact tracing is hard, grows exponentially. You know, simple numbers, you have one person who tests positive, And if that person has been in touch with 10 other people, their close contacts, then you've got to sort of contact and deal with 11 people. And if you make the decision, which governments are doing now and health authorities are doing to look at the contacts of the close contacts, and they've got an average of 10, all of a sudden you're dealing with 111 people. It's a lot of people very, very quickly. And that's just with one starting case. Yeah. And then, of course, they interact and, and um, you've got outbreaks that can involve thousands of people. And contact tracing is labour intensive. We have to take the unnecessary manual steps out of it. So you can, from the very beginning of swab testing, digitise the patient information, keep that digital record all the way through. And that saves a huge amount of time and allows computers to allocate caseloads to the work. But at the end of the day, a human being has to pick up the phone and spend up to an hour or more interviewing a person. Because when you call up a person, you say, Murray, who did you see in the last seven days? Tell me all the people you've had you know, more than 15 minutes contact with. Murray, you start scratching your head. And the good contact trace will take you back through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, listen to what you're saying and help you to remember who you've actually seen. So there's no way of automating that. So it's a very labour-intensive challenge. 
But given all of that, I think we're doing very, very well. In the context of the recent outbreaks, it's a judgment call. There is some point where if you've got a highly infectious variety and it's come along as a bit of a surprise and the numbers are building up quickly and you're looking at your contact tracing workforce capability, you've tapped into the surge workforce, you've borrowed people from other states to help you and you think, gosh, if, if there's an extra 20% or 30% or 40% caseload, it's going to start overwhelming us. And so then the chief health officer gets together with the premier and cabinet and other people in the health system and they have to make a judgment call to do a partial or a full lockdown. Remember, managing COVID, contact tracing is not the intended primary way of managing COVID. It's preventative health that is primary. It's the social distancing, the mask wearing, limiting the number of people in public venues. But all of that has to be proportional to the risk. So it's an incredibly difficult balancing act. And have we got it right all the time? Of course not. But Have we done as well as you could expect of any complex society? I think we've we've done pretty well. I'd rather be in Australia than any other comparable country, you know, economically developed country uh, in the world. And yet we complain about ourselves relentlessly. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that 15-minute contact. I mean, recent data suggesting that with this Delta variant of the virus, that contact may be fleeting. I don't know how strong that is, but if it's much more fleeting and it's true that you can enter a room where, let's say, a heavily infected person has been breathing and has left, it it makes it almost impossible, doesn't it? Well, not really. It sounds like it's impossible, but what you are seeing with the Delta variant, there are these cases of fleeting contact that are leading to transmission. Mm. But it's not uniform in the sense that if one infectious person happens to be in the shop, in a shop at the same time as 15 other people, yes, one person might have caught COVID through that fleeting contact, but not all 15. So, yes, you get these instances of transmission through very, very brief contacts, but it's not so infectious that everybody gets the disease. And the exact numbers are, are poorly understood yeah. because the virus is mutating. So you can't make the decisions, I can't make the decisions, and I would warrant that 99.9% of the people who are in public advising the government what they should do don't have a basis for providing that advice. Mm. The people who I have confidence in are the public health experts working in institutions or for the government reporting up through to the chief health officer who then has to assimilate all of that and provide advice to the premier. And it's not black and white. This is not Einsteinian physics. Yeah. Einsteinian physics, every experiment that's ever been done has proven how accurate it is to the, you know, 0.999999 percentile. This is all over the place because of the nature of the beast. People are looking for simple solutions and say, why didn't you get that right? Well, it's not because there are evil people who are making the decisions (laughs) or people who are trying to save money. Because what we've seen in this is governments are not holding back. They're spending money for protection and to restart the economy. It's just that it's very, very hard. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. I did have other questions, which I'd, I'd love to ask you, but I just want to thank you again for providing us with a valuable insight into the complexities and necessities of contact tracing during this pandemic and indeed in preparation for future pandemics. So thank you very much, Alan. Thank you, Murray. My pleasure. Okay, that's it for another jam-packed Lachaim, starting off with Frankel and Finkel.
Dr. Alan Finkel with some valuable insights into the complexities and necessities of COVID tracing during this cholera pandemic and into the future. L'Chaim is part of the Jewish group here at 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Please check out the Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3 to 4 p.m. on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11 a.m. on Sunday. Please also consider supporting the Jewish group here at 3 Z by becoming a member for $16, $11 for Alta Kaka seniors like me. Click onto 3 Z webpage. All the information is there. You'll also find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's L'Chaim program on the 3 Z homepage. Link to the podcasts of tonight's interviews and Exploring Israel with Effie will be posted to the L'Chaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages. If you'd like to contact us here at L'Chaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. Many thanks again to Team L'Chaim, Dr. George Banke, our executive producer, Murray Frankel and Jeff Deacon. Until next week, stay well and COVID safe. L'chaim, am Yisrael Chai, and peace. Hooray!